This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Current born, wave flung, tugged hugely by the whole might of ocean, the jellyfish drifts in the tidal abyss. The light shines through it and the dark enters it. Born, flung, tugged from anywhere to anywhere, for in the deep sea there is no compass but nearer and farther, higher and lower. The jellyfish hangs and sways. Pulses move slight and quick within it as the vast diurnal pulses beat in the moon-driven sea. Hanging, swaying, pulsing, the most vulnerable and insubstantial creature, it has for its defense the power of the whole ocean, to which it has entrusted its being, its going, and its will. But here rise the stubborn continents. The shelves of gravel and the cliffs of rock break from water baldly into air, that dry outer space of radiance and instability. What will the creature made all of sea drift do on the dry sand of daylight? What will the mind do each morning waking? This is the opening passage from a book called The Lathe of Heaven by Ursula Le Guin. And... Um, as I was writing this, I was thinking, you know, I quote her so often, I really should pay her royalties. <laughs> but uh, there are writers like her, for me, like Murakami, like Annie Dillard, whose, whose images arrest the mind, you know, whose, whose images uh, go beyond the words to the very heart of our being and our non-being. And this question, what will the mind do each morning, Waking, it's a good question. It's an important question for us practitioners. It's a good question for everyone, actually. What will the mind, what will I do each morning waking? And even before that, we could ask, what is mind? What is morning? What is waking? Who is the one who wakes? The one who drifts and sways in that vast ocean of being? often so vulnerable. I don't know about insubstantial, but definitely vulnerable. <clears throat> and imagine if you could dream into being a reality, which is what the, the protagonist of this, of this story can do. So if he dreams that somebody has died, when he wakes, he finds that it's happened. One moment the person was alive, and in the next moment they've been dead for a day, a hundred years, a thousand years. So it's, it's a, a parallel reality that begins the moment that he dreams. And except for the people who are present at the moment of that shifting of tracks, the new reality becomes the reality. So that person, for the rest of us, never existed, or died way back when. And so he doesn't want 
this kind of power. And he doesn't know how to control it. He doesn't want to, to use it, and so he t- tries to stop his dreams. He tries not having them, not dreaming. Substitute thinking for dreams. Think how many times we, we think or we practice to stop our thoughts, thinking that that will be the way to freedom. It cannot be done. And so in desperation, and because he's really, he's mandated to, as part of the story, he starts working with someone, a psychiatrist, who very quickly realizes the power that this man has and begins using it for his own gain, telling himself that it's really for the good of the world, that he's going to get rid of war, of overpopulation, of sickness, except he's using another man's subconscious to change reality. And you can't manage the subconscious. It's not rational, necessarily, and it's definitely not polite. And so the psychiatrist doesn't fare well in the story. The world actually doesn't fare particularly well. And the fact is that we spend our lives, uh, to a great extent, trying to manage reality. And it won't cooperate. And perhaps if we've been practicing, and we've been practicing for some time, we hear, we perhaps even understand experientially that this reality is also a dream. And that it will not really yield to our desires. But the fact that we are largely unable to control it doesn't actually seem to stop us from trying. You think of of, uh, that very well-known quote by Shantideva, why cover the whole world with leather when you can just cover your feet with leather? Just put sandals on your feet. What he's really referring to is protecting the mind. It's on the chapter on, on guarding introspection. He's really saying when you become the master of your mind, not in the sense of controlling, but in the sense of understanding deeply what mind is, You don't need to cover the world with leather. But I think there's a part of us that really believes that one day we will crack the code, that we will finally unveil the unifying principle of the universe, which, of course, includes our our own workings, and that when we do so, our power will know no bounds, that we will eradicate illness and weakness and the mistakes of nature. You think of some of the work, the, the work that is being done with uh, genetics. That seems to be our, our, our propensity, our understanding of, of improvement is no mistake, no vulnerab- vulnerability, no weakness. And we, we, we always move towards more and more and more control. And I was saying yesterday in the retreat, I, I think that the more we create our lives in such a way to, to make us be more comfortable, we become less and less able to tolerate our discomfort. And our, our solution, if we, if we see that that's the case, is just to control more.
And, and so this, this sense, this illusion, really, that we will ever arrive at a place where we will not hurt, where we will perhaps escape death, even. And, and to see that, really, as progress, as the thing that we should be putting our energy on, is um, unsettling. You know, if we're paying attention, it's unsettling that this is how we see um, progress. And, and it's, it's, you know, for such an intelligent species, it's, it's ironic how sm- not smart we really can be. How, how we do persist in bargaining with reality. Thinking that at, at some point, you know, if I just get it right, maybe I haven't been trying hard enough. At some point we'll get it right and everything will be smooth. Think of your zazen once again. You know, maybe you're not practicing hard enough. That's why your mind is distracted. That's why you still get angry. That's why you still, you know, I don't know, have petty thoughts. You need to try harder. Is that really true? And, you know, at a larger scale, you know, in our, in our world, that the, the answer to these mass shootings is just more guns. So that when we... Um, are, are required to defend ourselves, we can do so. And the answer to war is more war, you know, bigger and more effective armies, deadlier weapons. That the, the solution, the antidote to old age is youth, of course, and youth at any cost. The answer to illness is more aggressive medicine. And so, our, and in our minds, the answer to an unwieldy mind is more control. And some part of us can see that it's not working. That we really, we oscillate between that fear, deep fear, and numbness, between hope and despair. And yet, often we're unable, unable to to shift tracks, to do something different. I, I, I read a quote, oh, it's, I think, Bell Hooks, but she was quoting somebody else in you know, that will to change. That, that's, that's one of the strongest wills that we have, desires that we have, is to change, and that that's also our biggest fear. Right? So we want it, but we fear it. And so we, we want, we move towards, and then we stop ourselves. And yet, as long as human beings have walked this earth, they have always been those who have said, this is not the way. This is not working. It has never worked. It will never work. There must be another way. So I will spend my life looking for that way. I will spend my life living that other way. And so although we are vulnerable creatures, as Le Guin says, we are not defenseless because we have entrusted our being. Hopefully we have entrusted our being. At a certain point, we do. Entrusted to that infinite power of the ocean. And if we take mind itself as that ocean, and it's a metaphor that is frequently used in Buddhism, you, you, you can, um, it's an image that can be helpful. 
And so according to the Yogacara school of Buddhism, there's the two main schools of Mahayana Buddhism are the Yogacara and the um, Madhyamaka. And Yogacara is sometimes uh, translated as known as the mind-only or consciousness-only school, Chittamatra. And it says that at the, at the deepest level of consciousness, the bottom of the sea, there's the storehouse consciousness, the Alaya Vishnana, in which the, every seed of every experience that has ever existed, that will ever exist, is um, stored. So perhaps roughly corresponds with uh, Jung's collective unconscious. And so every single dharma, for us every single phenomena, conditioned and unconditioned, is stored in this vast repository, this storehouse. And all of these seeds are without self, without agency, without choice. They're just there, just as as a seed, regular seed. But some of these seeds will mature. Some of them will mature in me, some of them will mature in you. And they do so in accord with the law of affinity, like meets like. And so my particular aspirations, my wants, my actions, the ones that I've chosen, will determine the result of further actions, which will determine the next action, etc. And a, a seed always is always consistent. The fruit is always consistent with the seed. And so... For example, all of us at some point have watered in some way, however, however small, the seed of affinity for the Dharma, or we would not be sitting in this room. Something brought us to this place this morning, 20 years ago, last month. Something brought us here. We may not even understand what it is. In fact, I think at the beginning, we don't understand what it is. It's, it's a feeling, an impulse. Somebody says something, they mention Zen Mountain Monastery. Oh, right, I've been meaning to go to that place. And you decide to go. Why that day? Why that time? Who knows? But you do. And I've, I've talked before how, you know, in my own circuitous path, you know, at, at one point I was um, backpacking through Europe and I was, I was staying at, so kind of a hostel, somebody's house. And um, I had been searching for some time for that different path, a different way. And I didn't know what I was looking for. I just knew it had to be other than what I was doing because that didn't seem to me to be working anymore. And on the bedside table, they had a book on Zen. So I picked it up and I started reading it. And I started sitting on my own. And then I continued and I came here some months later, and I got off the bus, I walked through the gate, and I felt I'm home. And I've often thought, you know, what if that book on the bedside table had been the Bible, or it had been, you know, a Peace Corps flyer, Mad Magazine? <laughs> would I still be here? <laughs> I mean, I'd like to think I, I would still be here, but I don't know. In, in so many points along the way in my life that I could have chosen that instead of this. So where would I be then? What would my reality be? 
And it makes me really, you know, if at any point I, I have uh, doubts or I'm, you know, struggling with, with being here, I've used that, you know, the, the, the wonder of the fact that I am here and I continue to be here, that I want to practice, that I have, you know, some, uh, the, the basic, at least, ability to be able to do so, the willingness to do so, that I was at a point in my life when I first came that I could practice, that I wasn't uh, committed in such a way that I could actually come, come into residency and explore this. Uh, it's um, wondrous to me and, and humbling. I think, you know, at some point I must have done something right, you know, to, to end up here and to continue, to be able to continue. I don't take it for granted. Somebody was saying to me yesterday, um, the image, in, it was actually a good match, the image of a, of a plant, you know, I, if, if you don't water, if you don't tend it, if you don't take care of it, and then you're like, well, I didn't really want the plant anyway, or I'm not sure if I want the plant. You know, you can never really know for sure, is this the thing for me, right? If you don't, if you don't commit, if you don't tend uh, what's in front of you, it may be that it wasn't for you, but will you know for sure if you didn't really try, if you didn't really meet it? And so some of these seeds we inherit. We inherit from our family, we inherit from our country, we inherit because of our gender, our race, our age. Well, our, our age, I guess, develops. And, and still, you know, as individuals, we do choose to, to tend certain seeds and not others. So when something unwanted happens to me, which happens to all of us at some point in our lives, I can still choose how to respond, which seeds to water in response to this action, to this event. And, and that identifying, identifying of the seeds and then choosing which ones I will water is practice, is, is to very deliberately and carefully Choose, choose my actions, which will lead to other actions and other actions. And this was one of the questions that, that we took up yesterday, you know, what practice is. And actually, what I asked the group is if they could um, um, explain it, if they could just write it in a sentence, what practice is, but explain it as if you were saying it to a five-year-old. So it's very simple, no, no technical terms, what practice is. And one of the responses was, practice is like emptying a box of Legos and organizing the pieces by color. And I like that, because if you say this to a five-year-old, first of all, they get it, they understand what they're supposed to do. But although it seems very, very simple and that it can't possibly um, encompass all of your life, it is a, a, a very, very nice way to um, describe that process, identifying this is, this is a blue piece, this is a red piece, this is a green piece. And this one is, can only work for a wall, this one can only work for a wheel, this one can only work for whatever else. Because most of our, uh, or, or much of our conflict, comes from not understanding how to use the various pieces of our lives, right? So we're trying to build a life 
not really understanding the material, not really understanding the soil, not really understanding the tools, perhaps not really feeling confident that we have the ability to sow a seed. And Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, he, he has a commentary on this, uh, an, an important Yogacara sutra. He, he speaks of trusting the soil, that the gardener cannot do the work of the soil. You need to trust those seeds. Trust that they're there. Trust that they will fruit, that they will bloom in the right way if you do the work of tending them. They can't just sprout by themselves. And so then the next level, the seventh consciousness, is manas. Roughly corresponds to the ego, the self, from a Western perspective. And it is the ocean itself But wind gets stirred up, and then a a bit of ocean, a wave, appears. And it turns and it looks at itself, this bit of ocean, and it falls in love with itself. And in fact, manas is called love of self. And so it knows deep down that it's part of this ocean, this part of this vast body of water, and that it's no different from all the other waves flowing by. But because of that self-infatuation, its its vision becomes narrow. And now it perceives everything that happens, that it experiences as happening to it, for it, caused by it. And inevitably, that causes pain. And so the activity of manas is thinking. It is cognizing, clinging, discriminating. And it does so without pause. So even uh, during sleep, manas is working. And it's saying, this is me, that is you, this is mine, this is yours. Let's really keep that clear. (laughs) And pride and anger and jealousy, ignorance, all live within manas. But because manas is empty of self, just as the storehouse consciousness is, it's inherently liberated through practice. A wave can realize its ocean nature. A bodhisattva can realize that it is not just an individual separate being walking around the world in its own little cocoon. It, it, it realizes itself, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, interbeing. And it's called, that's called the realm of the immovable. And so at this point, Manas' grasp on the storehouse consciousness is released. And it becomes, the, the, the storehouse becomes the great mirror wisdom. So now we're able to see, perceive, and use, live all those seeds without that self-clinging. So Manas becomes the wisdom of equality where we realize our interdependence, we realize our unity. We realize, yes, I'm this one wave, and I am the ocean. And as I was saying yesterday, this makes things easier, and it makes them harder. Easier, because now all the energy that was going into protecting that wave and keeping it contained is freed up to work for the benefit of the whole ocean. All the energy of the ocean is now available to that wave, but it's harder because every time a wave gets hurt all the way across the world, you feel it. You get hurt. 
But although it's difficult to be um, the ocean and to feel that pain, to feel that suffering, it's much, much harder to be a lone wave. Hands down. It's much harder to know yourself, feel yourself as alone. And also because you are, in fact, that ocean, you're realizing that that ocean nature, as I said, the strength of it now becomes available to you. And so your capacity to hold that hurt, to hold that pain, increases. Your capacity to, to water seeds that strengthen wisdom and compassion increases. And your wish to stop that hurt also becomes vast. And then the top six consciousnesses are the six senses, which include mind. And so mind consciousness always operates with the other five. Without mind, we cannot process what we touch, what we see, what we hear, what we feel. And like manas, at first, they're obscured, the senses, and they're often called the the doors or the windows of the senses. And so at first, it it is obscured, it's it's muddied, they misperceive. I see something, and I see it as myself, I'm seeing that. Here I am, separate from what I'm seeing. But unlike manas, mind consciousness can perceive things directly. In a sense, it can bypass that self to come directly into contact with suchness, things as they are. But most of the time, we're too distracted. We're moving too fast. Right, to make this direct contact. We speak too loud. We're, we're in too much noise to break through that surface awareness. And that's why in Buddhism, the six senses are called thieves, because they steal our awareness, our mindfulness, our concentration. They take us for a ride. And as we're, we're careening down a hill, you know, around curves, we can't see the landscape. We can't feel ourselves either. And so the practice here is to train the mind consciousness to perceive correctly, to perceive without filters. And it does so through mindfulness and clear comprehension. And so we train ourselves to see and to hear, to smell, to touch directly. And so that when we taste a bit of food, we actually are tasting the food, not our idea of it or the conversation that we're having, not our our opinions about the person who's in front of me, but I'm actually seeing the person. And so we learn to see things, in fact, for what they are, not for what we like them to be. We also learn to see what is in the way of that direct perception. And, and a big part of, of learning to discern which seeds to water, I have to be in touch with what I want. I have to be in touch with what is most important to me. And I, um, I don't know if you saw, there was a, in a recent New Yorker, I think it was last month, there was a cartoon where there's a, a, a thief in a house with a whole thing, slew of things strewn about him. You know, so there's a television and a microwave and jewelry and some stuff. And he's hugging a stereo 
to his, to his chest. And he's asking himself, do I need this? Does this bring me joy? <laughs> that is actually a good question, <laughs> a question we should ask. Do I want this? Do I need this? Does this actually bring me joy? Because when the match, when there is no match, we are dissatisfied. And unfortunately, we're experts at expecting to plant uh, an apple seed. To, we, we plant, or let's say, a lemon seed, and we expect an apple tree. And then we get upset. Why isn't this working? And so I've, you know, I've given the example before that you know, if, I, if I feel lonely, and it hurts, and I'm uncomfortable, and I decide I'm going to buy a pair of shoes to feel better, to assuage that anxiety and that discomfort. And then the Zappos box comes. And then I look at it and I realize, oh, I really wanted love, but now I have shoes. (laughs) There's a mismatch. (laughs) And it's good to know, you know, what happens most of the time is we we don't know that that's actually what we wanted. We just got to get the shoes and then we don't understand why is this not fulfilling me? And so this, the, the question, and you know, all of what we did really yesterday in the retreat of Four Foundations of Mindfulness is really having a process with which to ask, what do I really want? What am I feeling right now? Does it match um, my want? And in and, and how I'm dealing with this thought, with this feeling, with this sensation, is, is it, is it um, responding skillfully, appropriately, accurately? And the thing is, you know, being mindful is actually not enough. We have to be fiercely honest. Because I think some, often as practitioners, you know, if, if we want to be good practitioners... We, we will have a desire, and then we tell ourselves, well, I shouldn't really have this. I should be past that now. I've been practicing X number of years, weeks, months, and I should not be feeling this anymore. And so now not only is there a mismatch, on top of that now I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. And so to first to really know in a moment of zazen, you know, do I want to let go of my thoughts right now? Or do I really want to go for them? Do I want to sit here fantasizing? Do I want to be distracted? Right now, reality is too much. Do I want to just go numb? To at least know that now gives us something to work with. When we don't know that, and we're just pretending, or, or we're pretending that we're over here when we're over there, the the seeds do not have a chance to grow. That's why, you know, there's um, some Zen teachers who've spoken of, um, you could say honesty, but really the practice of not deceiving ourselves as the greatest uh, ascetic practice. Chuangzi, the 4th century Chinese philosopher, says, when the monkey trainer was handing out acorns, he said, you get three in the morning and four at night. And this made all the monkeys furious. Well, then, he said, if you get four in the, you'll get, then, four in the morning and three at night. And the monkeys were all delighted. (laughs) 
And this is what we do, actually. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a nice image, um, but this is actually what we do. We bargain. We bargain, thinking if I, if I bargain enough, I will get there. And so practicing body and mind, feelings, thoughts, really means being willing to renounce our propensity for self-deception. It means really being willing to, to study, to study our actions and their consequences. Because, you know, one thing is to, is to just be frustrated. You know, I'm, I'm, there's a mismatch and I'm not getting what I really want, and that's frustrating. We've all experienced that. But what if we're not able, we're not able to hold this frustration, and so we decide to cut down the tree? Cut down every tree, because why should anybody else be happy if I'm not? You know, and most of us, fortunately, don't do this with axes or with bullets, but some of us do. Some of us, in our, in our inability to hold that fear, that frustration, that confusion, why isn't this working? Why am I so alone? And our inability to hold that in will spew it out. And when we don't do it so dramatically, you know, that, those, those seeds, you know, that, that just that seed of pleasure at somebody else's misfortune, or, or that seed of jealousy at somebody else's good luck, that's a moment, that's a moment to pay attention to. What do I want to water, and why? Is what I want, what I'm watering today, the same thing I I wanted or thought I wanted to water yesterday? If it's changed, why? Is there any part of me that is is expecting to get an apple from a lemon? And so, after a while, we do learn to do this more naturally. We don't have to be so so um, vigilant. Although, you know, in some ways, you know, it becomes more subtle. It becomes more subtle, hopefully, the, the, the clearer we become. So in one sense, it's always, you know, we always have to pay attention. But it, be, it does become more natural. We, we're, we stop expecting to get the wrong fruit from a seed. We, we learn how to actually bring the two together, to be in harmony. And the nice thing about the way that things actually work is that clarity is, is exactly contained within delusion. They're not actually different seeds. And so there isn't another better, improved state of mind where I will be freed another time, another being. My illness, my confusion, my anger is exactly my health, my clarity, my kindness. And it's not later either when I have practice for X amount of time. It's actually true now. Just takes a moment. Just takes a moment for something to transform, for a poison to become a virtue. And it does so through mind. And so when manas is illuminated, the mind consciousness and the other five sense consciousnesses are also illuminated. And so we have the storehouse consciousness, now is the great mirror wisdom. 
And I see that your happiness is my happiness, which means there's actually an endless source of joy for me to, for me to draw from. So if I'm not feeling in a, in a moment, I can actually um, receive it from you. Just as a tree, you know, a, a family of trees, a stand of trees will feed each other through their roots. We do this for each other. When we say, you know, we're drawing inspiration, support from each other, it's not just psychological. Like we see someone and that inspires us. Quite literally, we're giving each other that strength and that energy. During Sashin, we, we say that often, you know, really use the energy of the room, of the Sangha, to support your practice if you're feeling like you're, you're, you're lagging a little bit. And that is real. It's available to us. That is why it's so powerful to live in community. Shugen Sensei was speaking to the residents recently, and we were speaking about the shootings in um, Las Vegas. And he was saying, you know, we didn't come together just because it's practical, just because it's, it seemed like a good idea. We came together to water certain seeds, to ripen them into certain results, and to show the world that it is possible to do that, that it's possible to live in harmony. That's why I always think it's so important for us to really take that on, you know, that to, to really take on that task of cultivating that harmony here with one another. And religious communities have been doing this for thousands of years, and the results you know, haven't always been perfect. In fact, they haven't, they've never been perfect in the way that we usually use the term. And yet we keep doing it because we see its power the power of sangha, the virtue of harmony. This is a a fragment of a poem by Wisława Szymborska called No Title Required. The tapestry of circumstance is intricate and dense and ants stitching in the grass the grass sown into the ground, the pattern of a wave being needled by a twig. So it happens that I am, and look. Above me, a white butterfly is fluttering through the air on wings that are its alone, and a shadow skims through my hands that is none other than itself, no one else's but its own. When I see such things, I'm no longer sure that what's important is more important than what is not. I had a quote yesterday from um, a Theravada teacher, Somathera, who is a translation and commentary on the Satipatthana Sutta. And he's saying, when one is strongly mindful, one plants one's consciousness deep in an object, like a firm post well sunk in the ground, and withstands the tempestuous clamor of the extraneous by a sublime ignoring of non-essentials. And I really like that phrase, a sublime ignoring of non-essentials, because we are ignoring them. Another way of saying is we're turning our attention away from what is non-essential to what is. And that is a sublime act, because the purpose is to clear our mind for what is essential. And yet Shimborska is, is, is kind of alluding to the fact, well, how do you know, or what is truly important are the things that I consider important right now in my life, are those really the important things? 
Am I sure? How do I know? Is there a way to know? And I would change a couple of the phrases just slightly differently. I would say, you know, above me, a butterfly is flooding through the air on my wings. And your shadow skims through my hands, the shadow which is the light of the world. Chan says, says one, one day I, was, I dreamt I was a butterfly. And then I woke, and there I was, myself again. And now I don't know whether I am a man dreaming that I was a butterfly, or whether I was, I'm a butterfly dreaming that I'm a man. What will the creature made all of sea drift do on the dry sand of daylight? What will the mind do? What will I do each morning, waking? For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.